You are now listening to the January 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and Divine Intervention. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Last time, we talked about how Joash survived the killing spree that Athaliah went on to rid all descendants of King David just so that she could become the queen. Joash grew up away from the reach of Queen Athaliah and eventually pushed her out with the help of Jehoiada the priest. Today, we're going to share the story of King Joash. His records can be found in 2 Kings chapter 12 and 2 Chronicles chapter 24. With Athaliah in power as the queen of Judah, Joash was raised in hiding by priest Jehoiada and Ahaziah's sister Jehoshaphat. After six years living in the bedchamber in the house of the Lord, he was then made known to the people of Judah. On the seventh year of Athaliah's reign, Jehoiada the priest presented Joash to the people of Judah as their king. Jehoiada interceded the covenant between God and Joash and the people of Judah to be the people of God. He also initiated the covenant between Joash and the people of Judah. He then delivered judgment against Athaliah who did evil in the sight of God. He ultimately proclaimed Joash as the king and helped him to become enthroned as the legitimate heir and sole surviving descendant of David. Joash was seven years old when he became king. The Bible does not give us the detailed accounts of how Joash carried out his kingly duties during his early years. But from what the Bible says about how Jehoiada advised Joash all the days of his life, we can deduce that, during the early years of Joash's reign, Jehoiada must have mentored Joash and helped him to be right in the sight of the Lord. Then it is not hard to imagine how Joash must have reigned over Judah under the counsel of the priest Jehoiada. From 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 4 to 16, and 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 4 to 14, we see how Joash gathered priests and instructed them to repair the house of God. To finance the work, Joash established new tax laws. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 7, the house of God at the time had been destroyed by Athaliah and Athaliah's sons. Those people who followed Athaliah were using the holy artifacts in the house of God for Baal worshiping. Joash was determined to repair the house of God. So he gathered priests and Levites and ordered them to repair the house of God with the money from the sacred things brought into the house of God from all the people annually. 
As mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 4, all the people made sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. There were three types. There was the half shekel that a man over 20 years old had to pay at each population census. The money received from personal vows and the money that any man's heart prompted him to offer. Joash wanted to see the house of God repaired as soon as possible, and he was willing to spend not only the maintenance budget, but also the offerings brought in for the house of God. However, his order to repair God's temple went unheeded. Even 23 years after Joash had become king, the priest had not repaired the damages in the house of God. Theologians explain that the money collected from the people might have not been enough to support the repair work, or the people stopped bringing in the money for sacred things simply because they did not see priests spending it to repair the house of God. Whatever the reason was, Joash decided he could not wait any longer for the priests and the Levites to do the job. The repairs to the house of God needed to be done, and Joash stepped in to take charge. 2 King chapter 12 verses 9 to 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 24 verses 8 to 14 tell us about Joash's plans in detail. First, he instituted a chest to collect money for the repairs and to make it easy for people to offer their money for the sacred things. When the chest was filled, only the king's scribe and the chief's priests were allowed to open the chest. In addition to those who had oversight of the house of God, the money was used to pay those who worked on the house of God, such as the carpenters, the builders, the masons, and the stonecutters. It was also used to purchase materials necessary for the repair. The Bible records that these people were trustworthy, so much so that they did not need to report their spending. Joash made sure the money collected this way was kept separate from the money from sin offerings and guilt offerings. The priests depended on these offerings, and Joash did not want to make their lives difficult because of the work they were doing for the repairs to the house of God. With Joash's involvement, the work progressed and the house of God was finally restored according to its original specifications. When the work was completed, there was even some money left over. With that money, they were able to make additional items in gold and silver for the temple, such as pans and utensils, used to administer the offerings on the altar of God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 14, we find that the high priest Jehoiada offered burnt offerings in the house of God continually through all the days of his life. Jehoiada finally passed on after he reached the age of 130 years. People buried him in the city of David among kings because they remembered how faithfully he served as God's instrument to help preserve their faith, counseling their king Joash in restoring the house of God. However, after Jehoiada died, Joash began to change his ways for the worse. Without Jehoiada's counsel, Joash began listening to others that came and enticed him to turn away from God. The leaders of Judah came to see Joash 
and persuaded him that they had to worship idols again. Here's what 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 17 to 21 say about this sad turn of events and how God tried to reach out to Joash to keep him on the right path. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the wooden symbols of a female deity, Asherah, and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem, for this their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Toward the end of his reign, Joash started to worship idols. God sent him prophets and waited for him to turn back to God, but Joash would not listen. Finally, God sent Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, to Joash, hoping that he would remember the grace God had provided to him through Jehoiada and to return to God. Rather than listening to Zechariah, Joash stoned Zechariah to death. Eventually, God raised the Aramean army and rendered his judgment against Joash. The Aramean army marched against Judah and reached Jerusalem. They put to the sword all the leaders of the people and sent their spoils to their king. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 18 records how Joash lowered himself to King Hazael, king of Aram. Joash took all the sacred things his father Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah had dedicated, and his own sacred things, and all the gold that was found among the treasures of the house of God and the king's house, and sent them to Hazael, king of Aram. Then Hazael withdrew from Jerusalem, and Joash was able to prevent further war. Yet Joash was greatly wounded in the war. He became feeble and was not able to move well. In his weakened state, some of his own servants conspired against him. They murdered him in his own bed. The reason for this killing was pointed to his role in the death of Zechariah, son of Jehoiada. They buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. God chose and protected Joash to fulfill God's promise to King David. Joash repaired the house of the Lord along with the chief priest Jehoiada and carried out God's words faithfully. But once Jehoiada died, he began to engage in idol worshiping and did not listen to God's word. God waited for Joash to turn back and spoke to him continually through his prophets. But in the end, sadly, he died in his own sin. 
This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week. You're supposed to have it all together And when they ask how you're doing Just smile and tell them never better Lie number two Everybody's life is perfect except yours So keep your messes and your wounds And your secrets safe with you behind closed doors Truth be told, the truth is rarely told. I say I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken, and when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it. When being honest is the only way to fix it There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know So let the truth be told There's a sign on the door, says come as you are, but I doubt it if we lived like that was true Every Sunday morning pew would be crowded But didn't you say church should look more like a hospital A safe place for the sick The sinner and the scarred and the prodigals Like me Well truth be told The truth is rarely told the only one who says I'm fine, yeah I'm fine, oh I'm fine, hey I'm fine, but I'm not, I'm broken, and when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not, and you know it, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it, when being honest is the only way to fix it, there's no failure, no fault, there's no sin, you don't already know. So let the truth be told Can I really stand here unashamed Knowing that your love for me won't change Oh God, if that's really true Then let the truth be told I say I'm fine, yeah I'm fine Oh I'm fine, hey I'm fine But I'm not, I'm broken And when it's
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is blended. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. The Founding Fathers saw religion and morality as vital components to the success of this republic. And remember, separation of church and state was never meant that government, it was meant to keep government out of church. It was never meant to keep the influence of churches and morality out of government. But what we didn't answer fully last week, I want to answer today. Why did the Founding Fathers see religion and morality as so vital to this country? Why? That's important. Well, here's why. Here's one of the big reasons why. The United States is built on a principle of self-government. We are a self-governing nation. We the people, we govern ourselves, amen? It's a good thing, right? The founding fathers saw self-government as the best form of government this side of heaven. Now, the best form of government is when Jesus comes in his kingdom and he sits on the throne and he's our king and we are his people, amen? It's going to, that's going to be a perfect government. It'll be a theocracy. (laughs) And that's what we look forward to. But on this side of heaven, the founding fathers saw a government established on the principle of self-governing people, people that govern themselves as the best form of government, this side of heaven, because the people, the power belongs to the people, not to the bureaucrats. But here's what the kicker, this is the kicker. And if you you get anything from my message, get this. The founding fathers understood that a system of self-government is radically dependent upon its citizens to be a virtuous, noble, and honorable people. We need to be a society where such virtues as personal responsibility, self-discipline, delayed gratification, and hard work are not only taught, they're cherished. And that is why the founding fathers loved the Bible. It wasn't the only religious, I mean, they, again, this, by the way, you often hear people say, well, America was started as a Christian nation. No, we weren't. We were started as a free, we were a self-governing people where you had religious liberty to worship in any way that you wanted. That's what we were started as. But again, the founding fathers saw religion as important because religion, specifically religion taught in the Bible, helped create virtuous people, noble, honorable people. And a system of self-government is radically dependent upon that. The Founding Fathers understood that if the citizens of the United States lost their way morally, this country would be in big problem. (gasps) Hence, turn on the news, right? (laughs) Yeah. Could you imagine if the forefathers could see what was happening today? They'd go, this is exactly what we were worried about. But they didn't stop there. The Founding Fathers did not stop there. The Founding Fathers also understood that there was another institution that was critically important. And that institution was the family, the family. Founding father James Wilson said of the family, it is the true origin of society. It's the cornerstone of society. The cornerstone of society is not government. It's not public schools. It's not the courthouses. The cornerstone of a society is families, our families, strong families. I recently read an article about the founding father's view of the family. Of extreme importance in this article was this, the founding fathers saw the family as critical to raising children who would possess the virtues and maturity by which they could one day be able to successfully govern themselves. I kind of already mentioned that. But here's the kicker. In this article, the author also pointed out, people getting married today largely see marriage and family as an individualistic union with no larger obligation to society. The founding fathers would have disagreed with this. For the founding fathers, married people raising virtuous children was indispensable for the success of a self-governing republic such as ours. Amen? 
Now, all that in way of introduction. Before we launch into this topic, it's important that we address a few important issues. There are those in our society that are pushing a very dangerous narrative about the family. And the narrative is this. The traditional nuclear family, as found in the pages of the Bible, is a social construct. Social construct. You guys know what a social construct is, right? A social contract is just something that society invented to help move society along. But it was socially created by people, and therefore, it can change and should change, and it should evolve. And a good example of it being a social construct would be Marxism. Karl Marx saw the family simply as invented by capitalists as a means to pass on their wealth to their children. So he said, this is where the traditional nuclear family started. It was started by capitalists, and that's why he wanted to get rid of the family. But it doesn't matter where you go. In the universities and a lot of other places, you are going to hear that the traditional nuclear family is simply a social construct invented by men. So... That family consisting of one husband, one wife, and unfortunately in this day and age, I have to add these words, one consisting of one biological man and one biological wife in a monogamous relationship, raising children who themselves will one day start their own families. It is being taught that this is something that has been made up and is now outdated and time for it to change. This narrative is being pushed in our universities. It's being pushed in the halls of Congress and our, our government. But here's what's even more crazy. It's being perpetuated in our elementary schools. I did a little study and I was going to, a little research, and I talked in preparing this message, I typed in in the Google search, uh, children's books on the family. And there was no shortage of books advocating for alternative lifestyles, alternative families that are being pushed in our elementary schools. And what teachers are trying to do, and this is another word that you need to be familiar with, it's the word deconstruct. Many secular teachers now are seeking to deconstruct the minds of their elementary children, and then reconstruct a different paradigm. They want to deconstruct their understanding of the traditional nuclear family as the standard and reconstruct that that's old and outdated and there's new ways to do family. So that's what's happening to our children and to our grandchildren. And again, we have to be very careful. And don't think for a moment this isn't strategic. Those advocating for the deconstruction of the traditional nuclear family know exactly what they're doing. They're aggressive, they're smart, and they are pushing this agenda very, very hard. That is why those of us who are Christians cannot let this narrative be hijacked by non-believers and changed to fit their worldly agenda. The narrative that needs to be taught to our children and our grandchildren is very, very simple. That's the great thing. In, in a world where they're saying there's a hundred different genders and there's all these different families and, and there's, it's creating mass confusion for our children. The narrative is simple. The traditional nuclear family as we know it is an institution established by God himself at creation and must be defended and protected at all costs. Amen? Are you with me? But here's my point, folks. If you're looking for our politicians to defend the traditional nuclear family, there are some out there for sure and praise God for them. But many of the politicians are now compromised. If you're looking for our universities to do that, our universities, many of them are compromised. Not all of them. There are some good Christian universities, conservative universities that are protecting the traditional view of family, but many are compromised. Even Christians, some Christian schools are now compromised. If you are looking to our secular school teachers to do this, they have been compromised, many of them. Believe me when I tell you, we as believers are on war. We are at war on many fronts. We are at war on many fronts, but not all fronts are the same. Some fronts need to be defended and protected uh, at a greater cost and with greater passion. And folks, this is one of them. Defending and protecting 
the family, the traditional nuclear family as described in the pages of the Bible. The origin and structure of family, again, is found in the pages of the Bible, Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Mark 10, 6 and 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This isn't a social construct. God's saying from the very beginning, this is the way it was supposed to be from the very beginning. Therefore, a man, a biological man, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his biological wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So therefore, so they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The bedrock of the family is one man being married to one woman for life. As a couple begins to have children and their family grows, God's word has clear instruction as to how parents are to raise their children. And these words that I command to you, command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. By the way, remember what I told you, the founding fathers saw religion, morality, and family as critical to helping raise virtuous children. What is this verse talking about? Raising virtuous, godly children. It starts where? It's not the government's responsibility or the universities or our public school teachers to raise virtuous children. The first line of the, by the way, the founding fathers did originally see the church and the public schools in these places as raising virtuous children. That's why there was prayer in school and they said the Pledge of Allegiance because schools could be trusted to raise virtuous children. Churches could be trusted to raise virtuous children. Even the government could help aid in raising up virtuous people. Not anymore. But the first line of defense for raising virtuous children, honorable, godly children is what? It's the family. It starts here. This is it. This is ground zero. It starts here. Likewise, God's word has clear instructions for children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Could you imagine if that, that one principle there was taught in public schools and universities? Children, obey your parents. Honor them. Honor your parents. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. This is the first of the 10 commandments with a promise attached to it. And the promise is that if you obey your parents, you're gonna live a long life. Now that's, that's true in most cases. If you obey your parents or if your parents are giving you wise godly counsel and you obey them and honor them, the chances are you're gonna be kept out of trouble and you will live a long life. And this was a promise that is given. The point is very simple, folks. The family is a divine institution, not a social construct. Amen? And the Bible teaches um, that we have to defend and protect this. Listen, folks, again, don't expect your politicians to do this. Don't expect the universities or teachers to do it. Don't slough that responsibility off on someone else. It is your job and my job to protect the family. We are the ones that have God's word. We are the ones that know the truth. If you and I do not stand up in this generation and start defending the truth of scripture, which is there's two genders, there's one family, one man married to one woman for life, raising godly children, virtuous children. If we don't defend that, I got news for you. This country's in trouble. <laughs> this country's in trouble for no other reason that the next generation will be compromised and will not be able to properly govern themselves. One Bible teacher said this, quote, God created marriage. No government subcommittee envisioned it. No social organization developed it. Marriage was conceived and born in the mind of God, end quote, end quote. All right, strap yourselves in because we're just getting started. You ready? 
This is where things are going to get a little dicey. <laughs> Sadly, the traditional nuclear family has been under full-scale attack for decades in this country. Again, going all the way back, and I, if you missed last week's sermon, you can watch it. Going all the way back to the 1940s is really when things started to go a little bit sideways in this country, or very sideways in this country. One of the main assaults upon the traditional nuclear family has come from this group right here, radical feminism, the radical feminist movement. Now, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it was known as the women's lib movement. How many of you guys remember that? Women's liberation movement, right? That's, how, that's what I knew it growing up. Uh, it is now the National Organization of Women Now. Perhaps you're familiar with that. It goes by other names as well. And it seems with each passing year, this movement grows more radicalized in its views. For example, over the decades, the feminist movement has pushed an agenda. Here's the agenda that this group has pushed in America. And you ask, you tell me, does, does their agenda help women and does it help the family? Over the decades, the feminist movement has pushed an agenda of sexual liberation for women, coupled together with a relentless attack upon the traditional nuclear family where men, specifically husbands, are seen as oppressors. See, and really at its root, feminism is just a form of Marxism because Marxism sets everything up as uh, Karl Marx saw everything as one group being oppressing another. It, whether it was rich or poor, we can do the same for black and white or husbands and wives. That's what it is. It's, it's, it, it pits one group as the victim and the other as the oppressor. And that finds its roots in, that, in socialism and Marxism. And we see that being played out in our society today in a radical way. Um, but uh, men, and specifically husbands, are seen as oppressors. Radical feminists see things such as unwed parenthood and easy divorce. Listen, they see these things as positive steps on the ladder of liberation. You're going to be a single mom? Great, that's better for you. Get out of the traditional nuclear family. You're being oppressed there by your husband, and that's a social construct that's bad for you and for your family. Easy divorce? Fantastic. It's just great for women. We want them to get out of their marriages really, really easy. The influence of radical feminism can hardly be overstated on our country. A 2016 poll found that 68% of American women are comfortable using the term feminist to describe themselves. I would argue the vast majority of them do not understand what they mean when they call themselves feminists. The fact of the matter is that for many within the feminist movement, there is an underlying resentment of men in general and husbands and fathers in particular. If you are a husband, if you are a divorced man in this country and you lose custody of your children, you are in huge trouble. Good luck on getting your children or seeing your children again. Um, there was a slogan in the 1970s in the feminist movement. This was in the 70s. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. That was in the 70s, folks. You think that's radical then. That was radical then. Imagine where we are today. As a result, the feminist movement has advocated for alternative lifestyles, alternative family structure, structures, many of them, but I'm just going to point out one, single motherhood being one of those. In 2017, the poverty rate for families headed by single mothers was almost 37%, whereas the poverty rate was only 7.5% for families headed by a married couple. You might remember the war of words that erupted between Hollywood and Washington. <laughs> there was a time when Hollywood and Washington didn't see eye to eye on single motherhood. In May of 1992, then Vice President Dan Quayle called out the show Murphy Brown for glorifying single motherhood. How many of you remember that fiasco that happened? If you don't remember, Dan Quayle 
called out the show Murphy Brown because it was really glamorizing and making look really sexy and really awesome being a single mother. Hollywood went ballistic. Vice President Quayle paid a significant price for it personally and politically, but it turns out that he was 100% correct. Far, far from oppressing women. By all modern metrics, and I mean statistical metrics, the traditional nuclear family offers women greater stability, greater security, greater opportunity, and greater happiness, as it does for men. And that shouldn't come as a surprise, because guess who invented marriage? God. He kind of knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He kind of knows what he's doing. The relentless attack upon the family by the feminist movement also left a massive wake of destruction with regard to children, specifically minority children. According to an MIT study by two economists looking at minority brothers and sisters, specifically African-American brothers and sisters born in Florida between 1992 and the year 2002, growing up in a single-parent home appears to significantly decrease the probability of college attendance for minority boys in particular. They found other worrisome effects too. Fatherless boys, minority boys, are less ambitious, less hopeful, and more likely to get into trouble at school than fatherless minority girls. This is just the tip of the iceberg. It applies to non-minorities too. A, a, a young boy growing up without a father is not the way God intended it. And the radical feminist movement is going to tell you otherwise. They're going to say it's a great thing. Liberate. Let's get liberated from that type of thinking. Let's not. Let's not. The groundwork laid by the radical feminist movement has now been adopted by many other groups. Um, many other groups. One such group is Black Lives Matter. <laughs> now, anybody that speaks out about Black Lives Matter is going to be called a racist. And I understand what I'm getting myself into in doing that. Um, I, what I'm going to say is this is a critique of Black Lives Matter from a biblical perspective. But let me say first and foremost, do Black Lives Matter? By the way, the key phrase, the key word in the, that phrase, Black Lives Matter, is the word matters. Because the reason Black Lives Matter, if, if you're a non-Christian, if you're out and you're an Antifa rioter and you deny God but are saying Black Lives Matter, you have no basis by which to say that. There is no God that created us. We are simply products of evolution. We are blobs of molecules. You have no right to say something matters. It is our worldview, the Christian worldview, that says Black Lives Matter because God created all lives and all lives are created bearing the image of God. Amen? So it's we as Christians who say, can honestly say black lives matter. And they do. We care for black lives just as we care for all lives. And we want the gospel to go out to all people. So don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't misunderstand where this church stands. We are for the health and well-being of all people. And by the way, this is, again, a social construct. You want a great example of social construct? That there are different races. That is a social construct. The fact is, the biblical perspective on race is what? There is one race, the human race. That's the key. There is one race, the human race. We are all in the same boat together. There are not different races of people. There's one race. So regardless of somebody's skin color or their origins, you are, it, you are part of that race, the human race. Amen? So that, that is the biblical view on these things. 
But back to Black Lives Matter. What I'm going to do is I'm just simply going to critique their view of the family. On their website, Black Lives Matter movement openly states its desire. Here's its desire. The disruption of the Western prescribed nuclear family. It's on their website. As a matter of fact, I printed off their beliefs and took it to my Monday study and we went through it line by line. But it's, it's again, a, a form of Marxism, which is uh, one group is oppressing another, okay? In this case, it's, blacks, uh, it's whites oppressing blacks. And, um, and so, uh, again, that's the, the base of this. But they want to get rid of the Western-prescribed nuclear family. They also want to dismantle what they call, quote-unquote, patriarchal practices. Patriarchal practices. In other words, they want to dismantle what they see as traditional male roles in the home and in society. So where the Bible says that the head of every woman is what? Man or husband. Christ is head, Christ is head of the family. Christ is head of the church. Man is head of the wife, and the parents are head of their children. God has set up an order, or God is a God of order. He has structured the family this way. And Black Lives Matter wants to get rid of the idea that men should be leaders in their families. That's a social construct to them. No, it's a biblical concept. And if you truly want to help black lives, enable and empower black fathers and encourage them to be leaders in their homes. Amen? That will change, that would change their movement overnight. And it's not just in the family, it's in society. They want anywhere where men are centered or men are being called to be leaders, they want that deconstructed and reconstructed with a new narrative, which is, uh, it's, it's the blurring of all lines between male and female, blurring all lines of families that were one co corporate unit and unity. By the way, on their website, I didn't put this in my notes, but I may mention it next week. Um, they want to see families, specifically children, being raised in what they call, quote, a village environment, a community-type environment. Again, that's just, that is a Marxism. Um, what breaks my heart, oh, by the way, not surprisingly, the Black Lives Matter is a strong advocate of alternative lifestyles, which is all over theirs, and alternative family structures. What breaks my heart, and here's what break, breaks my heart about the Black, Lider, Black Lives Matter movement, if they would simply champion the biblical definition of the family, what we know as the traditional nuclear family, they would change this country faster than they could ever possibly imagine. And guess who would be behind them 100%? Me. But as it stands, many of their positions, most of their positions are anti-biblical. They're no different from the feminist movement goal of destroying the family. It, their, their, their intentions might be good. They really want to help the African-American community. They should do it by supporting the traditional nuclear family. But BLM, Black Lives Matter, isn't the only group seeking to dismantle the traditional nuclear family. There are many, many others. See, at its core, you know what man, mankind is trying to do? You know what all of these groups are trying to do? What feminism is trying to do, Black Lives Matter, and all these other groups, you know what they're trying to do? They are trying to develop a utopian society apart from the teachings of God. This is how arrogant man is. Man, er, mankind will tell itself, we can build a utopian society with our own wisdom, just leave it to ourselves. That is a recipe not for a utopian society. That is a recipe for lawlessness, confusion, dysfunction, I guarantee you. And if you need proof of that, just look at where our society is today. And this is exactly what the founding fathers worried about. They didn't want mankind governing themselves in their own wisdom. They wanted a strong moral underpinning that came from religion and a belief in God, right? The, the, the Declaration of Independence, 
that we were created by God. Four times in the Declaration of Independence, there's reference to a creator. The founding fathers knew that a strong moral underpinning was the success of a self-governing republic such as ours. Have I said that yet? Okay, just making sure you guys got it. (laughs) A utopian society is not what we'll get. Again, greater confusion, dysfunction, and who knows what else. The assault on the traditional nuclear family has also hit the mainstream with Hollywood. Do I even need to bring this up? contributing greatly to the dismantling and deconstruction of the traditional nuclear family. There is no shortage of shows that celebrate this, alternative lifestyles. It was Ellen DeGeneres, I believe, that did the first female-to-female kiss back in a couple decades ago, and that she started breaking ground. This has only opened the door to the celebration of alternative lifestyles, the celebration of alternative family lifestyles as just as good or better than the traditional nuclear family. We celebrate in Hollywood dysfunctional families where husbands are often portrayed as weak, ineffectual imbeciles and where wives are forced to take charge and save the day. Husbands are often portrayed as just another child that the wife has to manage with her other children in the home. This is what's being portrayed to our young men and women. That's no doubt the influence of the feminist movement, by the way. Instead of showing men as strong leaders and women supporting their husbands, our children are growing up watching dysfunctional families where men are imbeciles and women have to save the day. And I'm not speaking to say that women can't save the day. Women can save the day. They're awesome, but it's just not a fair description. It's not an accurate description. It's not a biblical description. Women are also portrayed, here comes Marxism again, as oppressed in many movies and shows if they are not allowed to do everything a man can do. And by the way, this is the effect of the feminist movement on our society and the church and our nation is we have told a whole generation of young women, you can't be everything you should be unless you can do everything a man can do. That's horrible advice. That is horrible advice. God has created them male and female with biologically distinct, different roles, different passions, different different fluids. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Men have... Testosterone, women have estrogen. What is that called? Chemicals running through our bodies. Hormones, thank you. You don't often see, you don't often don't hear that word in church, do you? And what we're telling them is you can't be everything that you should be unless you can do everything a man can do. That's just a lie. You can be everything that God created you to be if you do what God has called you to do and be who God has called you to be and don't try to be something that you're not called to be. And the same applies for men. Listen, I can't bear children. I will never bear children, but my life isn't any less complete because I can't do that, right? Thankfully, I don't have to do that. (laughs) Women, God bless you. Bless you. Hollywood has portrayed motherhood. Being a mother and raising a family is often uh, portrayed as a second-class lifestyle, often or at least a less ideal lifestyle. In some cases, children can even be portrayed not as gifts from the Lord, but as hindrances to women reaching the full potential in the workplace and in their personal lives. I've seen shows where women get pregnant and they bemoan becoming pregnant because they they have to stay at home and they can't go back to work. Uh, And also in their personal lives, the children are gonna hurt their personal lives. Contrast that with what the Bible says about children. Behold, Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children in one's youth. Blessed is the man and woman for that matter, whose quiver is full of them. The quiver is what you carried your arrows in. And so if you had many arrows, you were better off. I always had arrows to draw on. Blessed is the man or woman whose whose quiver is full of arrows. 
the Bible says. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher that England ever produced, said this, quote, you are as much, this is to mothers, you are as much serving God and looking after your own children and training them up in God's fear and minding the house and making your, hus- making your house hold a church of God as you would be if you had been called to lead an army to battle for the Lord of hosts, end quote. Amen? Just last month, an article was published in BBC, British Broadcasting News, with this Uh, this was on, um, I ran across this and it said this, fertility rate, jaw-dropping global crash in children being born. By the way, I just got to mention today, I was on the, before I came into church, I jumped on the news and and surprisingly, I saw another article from BBC News that said singing, normal singing poses no more of a threat to spreading the coronavirus as is talking. In other words, talking and singing are just the same. It is when you are screaming at like a concert or projecting really, really loudly that, that the risk goes up. But just regular singing, if you're socially distanced in a church, is no more dangerous than talking as you would talking to someone. That's a side note. So feel good when you sing and worship the Lord. Question, why are women, have, why are women across the globe having so few babies? Well, according to this particular article, it's being driven by more women in education and work, as well as greater access to contraception, which is leading women to choose, they're not being forced to do this, choosing to have fewer children. However, in my opinion, this answer fails to really get to the heart of the issue of why women, women are choosing to forego what the Bible describes as one of the greatest privileges and rewards in this life. That's what it says. Uh, The fruit of the womb, it's, it's a reward. Why are women foregoing what the Bible calls one of the greatest blessings in life, having children? Could it be the relentless assault on the traditional nuclear family, the relentless assault on the traditional role of being a mother as inferior and less to men, and the portrayal of kids as inconveniences instead of blessings? Could it be that all this is coming home to roost? I would argue yes. I would think that that has a big point, a big factor in this. Why are so many women going into the workforce? Because they are being told that if you do anything other than that, you are less than what you should be. There's nothing wrong with women being in the workforce, not at all. But we're doing it at the expense, in many cases, we're we're driving them away from what God has called them to do in many circumstances, and this is the result. We now have a worldwide drop in children being born. Now, to many, the global birth rate dropping might seem like a good thing, right? There's seven and a half billion people on this planet. We have too many people here already. The resources are limited. This is a good thing, is it not? But what it actually does is it creates an inverted age structure where there are far more elderly people on the planet than young people. And this creates, folks, all sorts of real-world problems. I'm telling you, when you mess with God's plan, there's always real-world problems that come about. Whether it's in China, mandating only one child per family, that's been a disaster and has all sorts of problems. Um, from aborting, the killing of the, chil- the, the female children so that you have males. Now that there's all these males that can't get wives, I mean, there's all sorts of problems in China, but when you mess with the way God has designed things, you run into all sorts of problems. So the drop in the global birth rate might seem like a good thing, but here are some of the problems that come with the result of that. Who pays for the taxes in a massively aged world? Who pays for healthcare for the elderly in a massively aged world? Who looks after the elderly if there are so few young people? And at what age will young people ever be able to retire? These are just some of the problems that come with a a jaw-dropping global crash in the children being born across this planet. Is Hollywood's attack on the traditional family taking its toll? There can be no doubt about it. 
Even the Hallmark Channel, which is usually a bastion of traditional family-friendly shows, you, could use, you used to be able to put your children in front of the Hallmark Channel and at least feel good that they were safe while you cooked dinner or whatever it is you were doing. Hallmark is releasing its first ever show featuring a same-sex wedding. It's called A, weekend every, a Wedding Every Weekend is the name of the show. And so that will be on Hallmark. So guard your station if uh, you put your children or grandchildren in front of the Hallmark Channel. Unfortunately, Disney Channel... Its content is deteriorating at warp speed, too. The network introduced its first bisexual character in the most recent episode of The Owl House, which is an animated show for children. So not only has government been compromised, our universities have been compromised, um, many of our churches have been compromised. Um, those family-friendly stations on TV that we love so much have been compromised. The traditional nuclear family, the biblical family, as described in the page of the Bible, is under full-scale attack. Our founding father, and folks, that's no small matter. It is no small matter. It's going to have ramifications not only on people's personal lives, it's going, to, it's going to affect the church, but as the founding father said, it's going to affect a system that is built on self-government and that that system will implode if we are not raising up virtuous offspring. The end result of this onslaught from the feminist movement and groups like BLM and Hollywood is an entire generation of young men and women who now believe the biblical understanding of family is a social construct and outdated. That's the end result. So I finish with this question. Is there hope for America? Folks, I ultimately do not know. If we make it a priority, we, meaning you and me, to protect, honor, and nurture families here in this country, the future has hope. If we let things continue down the road, we are headed, all bets are off. This great experiment in self-government, I have no doubt, could come to a rapid end, even in our generation. And folks, that's why we must demand that our politicians, our teachers, our university professors begin to construct, reconstruct the understanding that the gold standard is the traditional nuclear family. You must demand that. You must vote that way. You must vote with conviction. You must write letters. You must be passionate about it. But even more important than that, folks, is that we are believers who do all we can to strengthen and support our own families. It starts with us, does it not? And to strengthen, and fam strengthen the families in our own churches. Believe it or not, you can make a radical difference. You want to know what's even more important than your vote this November 3rd, which is my birthday, by the way. What is more important even than your vote, what, what's something that you can do between now and November that will have even more impact probably than your vote? Help nurture and protect Christian families that you have access to. As a matter of fact, help nurture and protect any family that you have access to, but especially to those in the household of faith. Whether those families are here on campus and we have plenty of families, Christian families, whether they're in your neighborhood or in your community, folks, strengthen and help support. Do you know how hard it is to be a young mother and father, not only staying married and having a healthy marriage, but raising children in the world that we live in today? Folks, your help is needed. Help strengthen the family. Get to this front. There are many that are fighting on this front, but we need you there as well. Because not only will you change the course of that family, you'll change the course of the church that they attend, you'll change the course of this country as the founding fathers warned about. So if I may end with this question, what might you do to strengthen and care for your own family or a family you know this week? Amen? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come before you. And God, we know that you are the founder and creator of marriage. You are the founder and creator of family. And God, you told Israel in the Old Testament the importance of family. You told us, you told them to teach their children and to raise them up in godly instruction. And Lord, that was not just for their individual health, but it was for the health of the nation of Israel. 
And God, what was true for them is true for us. Our founding fathers knew, God, that this self-republic that we love and, and cherish, God, is radically dependent upon virtuous generations being raised up after us. So God, we pray for the protection of the family in this country. Lord, I think of the rioters in Portland. Many of them, I'm sure, come from dysfunctional, broken families. I have no doubt. Many of them were raised without fathers. Father, I pray that you would change the riots to revivals. God, that you would sweep across this land. God, that you would change hearts and restore families. God, that you would restore marriages. And God, that um, we know that as that happens, this country will change. God, more importantly as Christians, help us to be bold. Help us to be fighters. Help us to be courageous in this generation. Lord, there are families that we can strengthen. In the quietness of your heart, I just want you to spend one moment and ask God, is there a family that I know that could use my help this week? Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray for the protection of this country. We pray for the protection of your church. God, we love you and we thank you. And we pray these things in your son name, son's name. And the church said with me, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming. We'll see you here next week. Together, everybody needs you strong. But life hits you out of nowhere and barely leaves you holding on. And when you're tired of fighting, chained by your control, there's freedom and surrender. Lay it down and let it go. So when you're on your knees and answers seem so far away. You're not alone, stop holding on and just be here. Your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. I'm on the throne, stop holding on and just be here. Just be here. Just be are on a storm, you wonder if I love you still. But if your eyes are on the cross, you know I always have and I always will. Then not a tear is wasted, in time you'll understand. I'm painting beauty with the ashes, your life is in my hands. So when you're on your knees, an answer seems so far away. You're not alone, stop holding on and just be here. Your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. I'm on the throne, stop holding on and just be here. Just be Hey!
listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting Google, Play Store, or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's program on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Divine Intervention. Dear listeners, among all the kings in northern Israel and southern Judah combined, who do you think did the most idol worship and disobeyed God? Ahab? Manasseh? Do you remember Ahaz, the 12th king of southern Judah? The story about Ahaz recorded in the Bible is really preposterous. As you read the story of Ahaz, you might think, what kind of person is this? Is he crazy? Ahaz became king at the age of 20, and the work he began was rigorous idol worship. He made the idol Baal, also he revered the god Moloch, and set his children on fire and offered them as sacrifice. He did such unimaginable, horrific things. He chose high places, hilltops, and green trees and set a platform underneath and offered sacrifice and burned incense to other gods. It seemed like he studied what God hates and detests the most and did exactly that. King Ahaz boastfully and with intense passion chose the things God detests and did those things. There were many kings in Israel and southern Judah who served idol, but there was never a king in the past or future who diligently, zealously served and offered sacrifices like Ahaz. Finally, God raised a disciplinary whip on Ahaz. Based on 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 5 and 9, the Bible says, God delivered Judah into the hands of other countries because he was angry. The continuous invasion from Aram, northern Israel, 
Edom, and Philistine caused the entire land of Judah to go into an uproar from all the defeat. Because of northern Israel, 120,000 soldiers died, and 200,000 women and children were taken as slaves, leading to a tragic situation in Judah. The land of Judah was filled with outcry, wailing, resentment, and fear, and changed into a land with the stench of the blood of slaughter. Ahaz was in a state of urgency and asked the emerging nation of Assyria for help. However, although he thought Assyria would help, Assyria coldly rejected him. The world was against him. However, look at this. When a person is in difficulty, his heart weakens and he may reflect upon himself and ask, Did I do something wrong? Or turn his heart back to God. But Ahaz doesn't do that. The Bible says, In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. As if he lost his senses and discernment, he did something even more foolish. He brought all the gods of Damascus who attacked him to Jerusalem and offered sacrifices, asking them for help. Not only that, Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them in pieces, and he shut the doors of the Lord's temple to serve the idols he brought. How could he fearlessly act like this? It seemed like Ahaz rolled up his sleeves to put up a fight against God. Eventually, through God's discipline, Ahaz ended his pitiful, humiliating, and miserable life. As I was meditating upon Ahaz, I couldn't just simply consider him a king who worshipped idols and was ruined. It was as if there was a problem I couldn't solve. I was concerned about the reasons why his actions were so extreme and crossed the line. When you can't understand a person's action, it's easier to understand when you look at his past circumstances. Therefore, I thought about Ahaz's family and his upbringing. Ahaz's father, Jotham, seemed like an exemplary king. If you only look at his achievements and outer appearance, it seems like there is no problem. However, the Bible evaluates Ahaz's father, King Jotham, in one sentence. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father, Uzziah, had done. But unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. The people, however, continued the corrupt practices. It says he did what was right, but did not enter the temple of the Lord, and the people continued their corrupt practices. The Bible's strange expression makes me feel like there was some kind of dark shadow in Jotham's life. For some reason, I feel like Jotham just circled around God's surrounding by giving sideways glances and feared coming in contact with God's eye. His action seems cautious and unnatural. To understand Jotham's action, Let's look into Jotham's father, who was Ahaz's grandfather. Who was Jotham's father and Ahaz's grandfather? Yes, it's the famous King Uzziah. Uzziah became king at the early age of 16. Until the day his mother and prophet Zechariah, who revered God, lived, he depended on God, and God made him prosperous. The Bible also says that God's great help was with Uzziah. However, as Uzziah, who was prominent in many ways, became powerful, his heart became prideful and he felt higher. 
One day, he entered God's temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. There was an offering law that said only the chief priest could burn incense. This was a law strictly commanded by God. Azariah the chief priest said the king's action was not right before God, but Uzziah became angry towards the chief priest. How dare you, a priest, try to teach a king? Maybe the king inwardly thought this and exploded into anger. But what's this? As soon as he was raging with anger, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Uzziah, who became leprous, lived in a separate house from the palace and spent the rest of his life in loneliness and suffering. Jotham clearly witnessed what happened to his father. His father received severe punishment from God because he tried to burn incense. His father Uzziah spent the rest of his life in loneliness as a leper, and this was a great shock to Jotham. God, this is too much. God, whom my father served, how can you be like this? How can you give such a harsh punishment for such a small mistake? Please, return my father back to normal. Wasn't my father a good king who revered you? Lord God, who helped and made my father prosperous, please heal my father. Jotham, who didn't know Uzziah's inner problems and prideful heart before God, thought that what happened to his father was shocking, fearful, and in one sense, unfair and resentful. This memory of his father probably left Jotham with a deep understanding and hurt towards God. Jotham didn't reveal his heart and lived cautiously. It seemed like if he did wrong before God, he would receive great punishment like his father. He didn't want to go against God, so he took notice and lived cautiously, but all his life he did not enter God's temple. His cold heart was close to God, and he didn't completely trust or depend on God. Under a king who was deeply hurt and didn't form a relationship with God, the people became corrupt without them even knowing. Ahaz grew up under such a father. Ahaz probably had pity on his father Jotham, who had a dark shadow appearance and lived all his life fearing God. Ahaz revolted against God and did evil acts which God detested the most and intentionally broke God's heart. Therefore, Ahaz had to receive punishment from God and his life was miserable. However, The fundamental reason why Ahaz lived a miserable life was not because of anyone else, but himself who excluded God from his life. Ahaz's original name was Jehoahaz. His name means whom God holds fast. However, his life was not Jehoahaz, but a life of Ahaz without God. He was the king of a nation who had everything, but since God was missing in his life, his life was nothing. I am your servant, your son. As a nation's king, Ahaz showed the most humiliating attitude before the Assyrian king. In this way, he depended on idols instead of God and bowed his head before the world's power. Ahaz lived his life without depending on God or expecting God to hold him. He is recorded in history as an embarrassing king who lived a foolish and disgraceful life. Dear beloved listeners, 
During this session, didn't you realize that our original existence was like Ahaz? Do you remember how we departed from God with all our effort? As I mentioned in the beginning, I thought Ahaz was a crazy person whom I couldn't understand, but I was shocked when I realized that I was Ahaz. I was forgetting that I was once an enemy with God. We acknowledged that we depended on numerous idols instead of God. I foolishly bowed my head before the world's power. At this time, I quietly kneel before God. When we were still sinners, God loved us and gave us His Son's life as a gift to save us. We had to receive judgment and die, but God covered our lives with compassion and led us into the life of Jehoiaz. I bow my head as I thank God for His amazing grace. God changed our life of Ahaz into Jehoiaz. Therefore, God came into our miserable life of Ahaz and He held us and walked with us. I am thankful for God's amazing grace. I hope you will walk with God daily during the week and be blessed. This was Terry from Divine Intervention. Dear listeners, I will see you again next time. Be blessed in the Lord. Goodbye. Believe.
I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.